Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another edition of the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. President Nixon said that he made his choice for National Security Advisor in an uncharacteristically impulsive way. Dr. Kissinger was a Harvard professor and the foreign policy advisor to Nixon rival New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Though Nixon and Kissinger had their disagreements, they agreed on a broad and strategic outlook of U.S. foreign policy. Quote, I had a strong intuition about Henry Kissinger. From the beginning, he worked with the intensity and stamina that were to characterize his performance over the years, Nixon once said. The combination was unlikely, the grocer's son from Whittier and the refugee from Hitler's Germany, the politician and the academic. But our differences helped make the partnership work. We're joined by James Sibenius, co-author of Kissinger the Negotiator, Lessons from Dealmaking at the Highest Level. Sibenius is the Gordon Donaldson Professor of Business Administration and directs the Harvard Negotiation Project. You can follow the work of Harvard Business School on Twitter at HarvardHBS. James Sibenius, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Just to kind of start off, um, uh, Nixon and Kissinger really changed the world at the height of the Cold War. And this book really goes into uh, how Henry Kissinger, in particular, crafted a uh, negotiation strategy uh, and implemented it in various parts of the world where the United States had an interest. Just to start off, why did you decide to undertake this project? My entire career, whether in the private sector or briefly in the Commerce and State Departments a number of years ago, has been on different kinds of negotiation, especially complex deal-making. One initiative that, um, that I've chaired for the last now 18 years is something we call Great Negotiators. And that's a joint venture of the program on negotiation, which is Harvard-based, but also with MIT and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts and otherwise. Each year we choose a man or a woman from around the world who's done remarkable negotiations, write case studies, bring them to Harvard, and right off start asking them, what was your most challenging negotiation? How did you handle it? What did you learn? What might you have done differently? How would you advise somebody in a similar situation? And so on. And uh, these people have just been remarkable. Uh, a number of years ago, we interviewed James Baker, former Secretary of State, about, um, about some of his most challenging negotiations. And of course, he'd been a deal guy in the oil and gas industry in Houston. But um, when he was 40, he moved into the government, managed presidential campaigns, but as a negotiator was instrumental in unifying Germany within NATO, putting the Gulf War Coalition to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and the Madrid conference between Arabs and Israelis, and so on. I mentioned Baker as one of our great negotiators, because that led two of my colleagues and myself, uh, Nick Burns, a longtime former diplomat, now a professor of practice at the Kennedy School, and uh, Bob Manukin, a law school professor in the program on negotiation, led the three of us to say, what about if we were to interview all the former secretaries of state, the U.S. secretaries of state, about their most challenging negotiations? And um, so we have done that, starting with Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, Baker, of course, Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Condi Rice, and uh, Hillary Clinton, and we're on tap for, uh, for John Kerry, and we hope Rex Tillerson before long. In any case, I, I give you this background because when we interviewed Henry Kissinger, the preparation was pretty intensive. Um, Jim Baker, I had to read about 400 pages of his memoirs, and of course we talked to people and studied. For Kissinger, I think I read about 6,000 pages, and I found myself really impressed with kind of the savvy that was there. And then if you put yourself in a, one of the kind of ornate classrooms at the Harvard Law School, this was Kissinger's first time in a Harvard classroom 
in 45 years since he had left the university and gone to be national security advisor and secretary of state. It was an emotional kind of homecoming to have this, you know, three or 400 students asking many times hard questions after we'd interviewed him. And uh, the president of Harvard at a celebratory dinner afterwards talked about a then 92-year-old rock star. But the thing that struck me and some of my most deal-making and negotiation-savvy colleagues was the sophistication with which Dr. Kissinger thought about and reasoned about and obviously had carried out really challenging negotiation. And that really set me to thinking about it, um, the combination of reading and then interviewing. George Schultz had, uh, when we visited him, uh, referred us to a small book of his called The Ten Commandments of Negotiation. And I asked toward the end of our interviews, our first interviews with Henry Kissinger, you know, Dr. Kissinger, if you were to write the equivalent of this uh, Ten Commandments that George Schultz had given us, what would be a few of them on your list? He kind of paused and told us that he had some, you know, given us some insights in the, in the discussion thus far, but really said, I don't think my, you know, first of all, I don't know that I could particularly use George Schultz's approach. And I know you've had Jim Baker here. And what I do know is you do not want to get between Jim Baker and a concrete negotiating objective. You'll get <laughs> run over. But uh, I think my approach is just too contingent, too dependent on the situation, the idiosyncrasies of personalities and so forth. And so I'm not sure it can be reduced to a series of principles or otherwise, except kind of the obvious ones like credibility matters and stuff. Anyway, I found myself thinking about it afterwards and disagreeing with him in the sense that I discerned a really clear pattern. And I wrote a long essay kind of imagining that I were Kissinger's ghostwriter and uh, were writing a short book of his commandments of negotiation. And it's about a 10 or 12,000 word essay, which I sent to him in New York after our interviews. And we got in touch and he said, you know, I've never really thought about it this way because I've, you know, one negotiates and I have views on it, but really the broader policy and geopolitical aspects were, were my main focus and what I wrote about in general. But this is really interesting. Why don't you come to New York and we'll talk about it. Anyway, it's a long answer, but that's the genesis of this, uh, of this book, which I imagined initially to be a very short thing. And the deeper we dug, the more interesting it became. And uh, the result with uh, my two colleagues as, as co-authors is, uh, is this Kissinger, the negotiator, which tells an historical story and uses historical case examples, which we can go into if you like. But it's, it's really about what one can learn to be effective in challenging complex negotiations, whether in business or finance, or obviously in diplomatic settings. So its objective is not so much history and kind of what actually happened, though that's necessary to understand what's going on. But the way this story has traditionally been told is, you know, the strategies and geopolitics are in the foreground and negotiation just kind of happens. And we've inverted that and had the background as kind of the history and the policy and the context and the negotiations in the foreground and asked what we could see. So um, I didn't ever expect to write this book. But uh, we became intrigued, and I, I must say, um, deeply, deeply impressed. And that, that compares with, you know, deep study and working with lots of the world's best negotiators, both in my academic and non-academic career. So it's, it's been a pleasure, plus something of a seat at, seat at, at, uh, at history. Just to kind of start off, how does your book define negotiation? It defines it in broad terms. In fact, if one, you can't take an airplane flight without seeing some unsmiling character offering to 
you know, help you through negotiation, get yours and most of theirs too. And it's primarily seen as tactics at the table. And of course, that's a critical part of negotiation. But we tend to think of negotiation in broader terms as the sort of deal-making aspect of foreign policy, the moves that one makes away from the table as well as at the table that are collectively designed to elicit the yes that you're seeking for to get the target deal actually done. So these are, you know, certainly building relationship and being persuasive. It's understanding the other side's interests and constraints and constituencies and so forth. But it's also shaping the incentives and the penalties and the set of players that will be directly and indirectly involved so that when you're actually at the table, you've got the best chance of realizing the the deal that you've got in mind. So it's a broad conception. Many people think quite narrowly about the tactical and interpersonal piece. That's vital. But the great negotiators that we've studied, and certainly Henry Kissinger, think in broader terms that I, I've just described. Moving to Nixon and Kissinger, what are the, what are the challenges uh, that they faced? Um, why are they so unique for, the, for those who want to study negotiation? I think, of course, the history is fascinating. And there are many people who studied that, and it's, it's intriguing. I think the challenges that they faced coming into office, having been elected in 1968, the U.S. was at the height of the Vietnam War, which was really sucking the oxygen out of pretty much everything else that was going on. Uh, It was a hot war at which 30-something thousand Americans and countless hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese had died. The effort to deal with Vietnam had taken down Lyndon Johnson, who didn't choose to run for a second term. And we were in the middle of a Cold War with the then Soviet Union and, uh, you know, and, and implicitly China, with which we had no diplomatic relations or official communications for practically 20 years. And so it was a, it was a time when doing, you know, we now, we now think of a, a polarized and divided United States. But when you think back to a time with riots and campus demonstrations almost daily and Congress passing resolutions to withdraw from Vietnam immediately, and uh, deep international um, uh, criticism of, of the U.S., it was a real mess. And, um, and in that sense, a great challenge to find, you know, to, to do what, what it was that I think characterized um, Nixon and Kissinger's uh, core objectives, which were to manage the tensions between the, particularly the Soviet Union and the United States to manage them and keep them from escalating and do so in a way that was to U.S. advantage. And probably animating Kissinger most fundamentally was reducing the non-inconsiderable risk of nuclear war. And I think those were the overarching objectives. And they were challenging with Vietnam as a hot war with the Cold War in sort of full swing and domestic turmoil. So in going into writing this, I had not really focused on those things. But when I look to the level of of partisanship and contention in the U.S. right now, it's hard not to to draw parallels to trying to do important negotiations in the midst of deep, you know, deep divisions. You divide your book into three three separate sections or three parts. The first part deals with um, 
crafting a negotiation strategy and executing it. The second part deals with zooming out and seeing the bigger picture. And the third part deals with uh, zooming in, reading your counterparts, and developing mm -hmm. relationships and rapport with, with your counterpart. Let's start with the uh, crafting a negotiation strategy. You begin with somewhat of an obscure episode in uh, Kissinger, the history of Kissinger's diplomacy towards the end of the Ford administ administration. Um, his work to negotiate an end to uh, minority all-white rule in Rhode uh, Rhodesia. And what's ironic about this is that Kissinger did this through multilateral negotiations with other white-ruled entities. Uh, can you give us the context for this episode in Cold War history and uh, how, how Kissinger crafted a negotiation strategy? In, in some ways, this was the most unexpected and in many respects, most interesting aspect of, the, of writing the book. I practically knew nothing about this, and as I've spoken to people subsequently, that's pretty common. Here's the context, and, and, and let me tell you what the result was, and then, uh, and then we can get into the how, which I think is what's really fascinating. In Portugal, there was a sort of a left-wing coup, and the then strongman um, was ousted, and two Portuguese colonies, Angola on the west side of southern Africa and Mozambique on the east side, both shifted toward Marxist orientations. And there was a significant push of Soviet and Cuban, in particular Cuban, forces into Angola. And this threatened significantly to destabilize the region and turn it into another front in the, in the Cold War, which to this time it had not really been. The concern was that Cuban troops, of which there were ultimately around 20,000, would begin to side with guerrilla movements throughout that region and effectively take um, control for the, um, for, for the Soviets in, in particular. This certainly got Henry Kissinger's attention, although in the white regimes of South Africa and Rhodesia, where white minority governments ruled, there was also growing concern, um, sometimes very intense, that this situation was unstable enough, was likely to erupt in outright war, and that it would be a, a sort of a race war and a bloodbath in Southern Africa if something couldn't be done. And then there was the fact that many Americans were, you know, on the heels of the Civil Rights Act and otherwise, were, were specially sensitized to relatively small white minority governments ruling over much larger black African populations. So there were a bunch of things going on then. Kissinger initially, together, and when I say Kissinger, I should make clear that he and Richard Nixon were just uncommonly aligned in many respects. I say uncommonly because you almost have to look, the only parallels of a Secretary of State and a president in modern times that seem comparable are George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker and George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice, you know, where there just seems to be this, this deep alignment, which is a great asset in negotiation. By the time of the Southern Africa uh, story, um, Richard Nixon had resigned as a result of Watergate, Gerald Ford was in, and Kissinger wanted to try with the French to mount a covert action to block the Soviets and Cubans in Angola. This was found out, and the Congress quickly forbade it. This was on the heels of Vietnam, and there was no appetite for foreign military adventures. 
So Kissinger decided to try to block the Soviet and Cuban move, as well as to prevent a race war and see the emergence of some democratic principle by what I've come to call a negotiation campaign. That's kind of the broader context. It's almost uh, almost remarkable that you know scarcely six months before Kissinger's negotiation campaign, as we call it, started, the head of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, a pretty remarkable character. If you looked at him, you'd see a sort of a stern Scottish visage. He had been an RAF pilot, been shot down a couple of times, and half his face was paralyzed, which gave him a kind of a, this affect that people, people noticed. And he had proclaimed that the white man built Rhodesia, the white man owned Rhodesia, and black majority rule would not come to Rhodesia, not now, nor in a thousand years. So it was pretty clear that he was unalterably opposed to any change in the political status quo. Kissinger then embarked on a negotiation campaign that in, in broad and somewhat crude and oversimplified terms said to the frontline states in southern Africa, this would be you know, Tanzania and Zambia and so forth, if you guys will keep out foreign troops, any foreign troops, but particularly Soviet and Cuban, Americans weren't going to put any troops in that region, if you'll do that, we will see if we can persuade the Rhodesian administration to accept black majority rule within two years. And that seemed almost impossible. And when the smoke cleared, Prime Minister Smith went on TV and accepted just that. And it was seismic. Um, in fact, the press accounts around the world, you know, cover of Time magazine, the rest of it were just, this was a staggering diplomatic achievement, averted a race war. The, the prose is remarkable. What's even more remarkable about it is that in order to do this, Kissinger had persuaded the South Africans, of all people, to put the arm on the Rhodesians to accept black majority rule. This is so remarkable in my mind, and my sort of deal sense just was puzzled at why the South Africans would suggest that the neighboring Rhodesians, the only other white minority rule entity in the region, would accept black majority rule when that would simply isolate the South Africans and the pressures would all turn toward them. Anyway, so in that sense, it was a remarkable negotiation. I got intrigued by it because this was done with no meaningful economic aid. There wasn't much money involved. There was no U.S. military action or any prospect of it. So it was kind of a pure negotiation. And in that way, and it was also quite, you know, I don't want to say uncontroversial, but it didn't carry the same kind of public issues as did actions in Cambodia or in Chile or other places that are, you know, controversial to this day. And so it was kind of a laboratory. Interestingly, Henry Kissinger told us that this was the most complex negotiation he had ever carried out which given, you know, the opening to China and detente and arms control with the Soviets and the 73 Middle East War and the, you know, Paris peace talks and so forth, struck us as pretty remarkable. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying, how did we get interested in this negotiation? And what did he do to pull this off? And that was kind of crafting a strategy, then executing it and so forth. And the principles that you could kind of extract from a close reading of this apply very widely. I've you know, shared them with um, high-level private sector audiences who first have never heard of this story and or practically never heard of it and are utterly intrigued with some of my MBA students and, and others. And it's in, in some ways because it's so improbable seeming 
that a Republican administration at the time would find itself 17 years before, you know, Mandela and de Klerk um, effectively ended apartheid in, in South Africa, um, that Kissinger was responsible for this. Now, probably the reasons that this has been so long forgotten is that the actual transition to black majority rule took a couple more years. Gerald Ford lost the election. Uh, Kissinger was a lame duck and then out. And the process pretty much ground to a halt. That picked up again a couple of years later in London at Lancaster House, which um, you know was intensive negotiations, but essentially ratified the Kissinger plan. And the result of that, unhappily for uh, Rhodesia turned into, which was Zimbabwe, was Robert Mugabe. And Mugabe ruled, you know, initially fairly popularly, and later dictatorially, and ground the place uh, down, and you know, economically and politically. So the actual result of it long term, you know, while it was a, a victory for democratic principle, if you will, it was a disaster in terms of Mugabe. And I think that's part of the reason, plus Kissinger's controversial actions in other areas, that this one's kind of been forgotten. But at the time, it was seen as a staggering diplomatic triumph, to quote the uh, London Observer. Part two of the book, you concentrate on uh, zooming out and seeing the broader picture how would you characterize that strategic evolution uh, orientation towards seeing the bigger picture? This is um, is something that, uh, if if I can kind of step back from this for a moment, one thing that crystallized for me and my colleagues in writing this book that I realized that I'd seen in many other negotiators but never really recognized was that really effective negotiators tend to zoom out, if you will, to the big picture, to sort of the the broader strategy that they're trying to pursue. In the course of negotiation, zoom in to the particular person. And they do this iteratively and often, bringing the sort of macro and the micro together to to attain their objectives. And it's not really like a two-step process that you zoom out to the bigger picture and come up with a strategy and then you zoom in and execute it. It tends to be back and forth, you know, big picture to, to small. What's so remarkable about this, I think the reason that we identified the structure of the book as zooming out and zooming in is that we saw Kissinger doing this consciously and I should say almost unconsciously, but continually. I know lots of people who are terrific strategists and analytical types who, if you will, zoom out very effectively. And many times they're not very good interpersonally. And yet they're people who are really good, they're persuasive, they're great schmoozers, they, they're interpersonally um, very skillful, but often are not strategically particularly adept, and sometimes they don't much even care about that. And I think what distinguishes Kissinger, in our view, and many other great negotiators as we've kind of crystallized this approach, is the capacity to both zoom out and zoom in and cultivate that as a skill. We found that with executives and business school students and so forth, that this is something that can be cultivated. In any case, that actually ended up structuring the book, you know, into the elements of zooming out and the elements of zooming in. You asked me about the the kind of a strategic aspects in zooming out. And what I realized is Kissinger almost encapsulated this when he compared himself to William Rogers, who was Nixon's secretary of state. And Kissinger actually respected Rogers as a as an effective lawyer. But when Kissinger thought about negotiation, he really contrasted Rogers, who tended to focus on the specific conflict or the specific deal that he wanted and see how you could do that. In contrast, Kissinger said, you need long-term objectives. You know, it's not really short-term in orientation. 
And then you need to look at the broader context and possible links among the parties and the issues in the regions over time. Again, not treating each negotiation on its seemingly independent merits. So you have a kind of a broader context, a kind of a wide-angle lens to see what might be relevant to this and how other pieces could be used to advance your agenda here. And then a careful plan to achieve these negotiating objectives by actions directly at the table and often indirectly away from the table to shape incentives and penalties to maximize influence. The, the kind of strategic approach also was always adaptability. Firm long-term objectives, but a lot of flexibility as to the means. Things change, other sides make other moves, new information surfaces, and the plan is not kind of a fixed recipe that you, that you just make or an architectural blueprint that you execute step by step. And finally, there was kind of a reputation, a continual focus on credibility across negotiations and over time, doing what you say you're going to do and not doing what you say you're not going to do. And when you put these things together, you know, long-term objectives, looking at the broader context and possible links, direct and indirect plan to achieve the goal, adaptability to, to changes, and a focus on credibility. Those elements really characterize what we thought of as, or came to crystallize as, as sort of the strategic approach that kisses your head when, when he would zoom out. His associates, and they were numerous and illustrative whom we talked to and knew in many cases, they underscored as for example, Hal Saunders in the, um, the shuttle diplomacy after the 73 war broke out between the Arab states and, and the Israelis. Kissinger was doing the shuttle diplomacy. Hal Saunders kind of almost lamented how between each of the something like 26 shuttle flights that Kissinger would say, okay, what's our long-term strategy? Write that down. How does the next step support that strategy? What does our strategy suggest about the next step? And there was this sort of constant iteration between the big picture and the particular instance, which was, you know, really disciplined. And Kissinger had his staff, you know, focus on that, and he himself was key on it. The sort of zooming out and the broader strategy was a big deal. And when you look at the relationship between the negotiations over China, the Soviet Union, the Middle East, so forth, and certainly Vietnam, he was always looking at the relationships among these things as to how negotiations in one area might affect and ideally help the negotiations elsewhere. That concludes part one of the interview with James Sibenius on Dr. Kissinger's negotiation strategy. I'm Jonathan Mavroides. You've been listening to another edition of the Nixon Now podcast. Please stay tuned for our upcoming episodes at nixonfoundation.org.